Mark uh, chapter 13, and we'll be looking at uh, verses 14 through 23. And if you would stand for the reading of God's Word. And Jesus said, But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to get his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant or for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that it did not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as not has been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. And the Lord will not cut, and, and if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. Be on your guard. I have told you these things beforehand. Shall we pray? Gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you. Lord, and as we read through this discourse that Jesus is giving to his disciples, we realize there is historical fulfillment of these, and then there is a greater fulfillment, a greater sacrilege, a greater judgment, a greater salvation that is coming. Father, and it is through Jesus Christ, our only hope in life and death, will we be saved. Father, I pray that you would give us eyes to see Jesus, that we would not become so distracted by our zeal for charts and maps and signs and wonders that we would fail to see Jesus or fulfill his commission to go as witnesses and make disciples. And that we would not be so nonchalant that we would say time ha there has been so much time that we would be apathetic and grow uh, and slumber and miss so great a salvation that Jesus has offered us. Father, but I pray that when we go through trials and tribulations, and when we think our strength has failed, may we know that Christ will hold us fast. Father, I thank you. Father, we lift up our brothers and sisters this morning uh, who are weary, who are sick, who are grieving who are worried about tomorrow, and next month, and next year. Lord, we pray that you would fulfill your promises, that you would hold them fast. There is no power in heaven or hell. There is no virus. There is no political party. There is nothing in heaven and earth, including death itself, that can pluck your children from your hand. Father, remind us of that when we think our strength will fail. Father, we thank you. 
We thank you for time and time, your provision in our lives, and we confess our forgetfulness. Father, it is quickly you deliver us and we quickly forget. Father, may we remember. Father, we lift up the Burkhart family this week as they grieve, the New family and the Brogdon family as they grieve the loss of their loved ones. Father, we lift up Virgil and Eleanor as they battle cancer, that you would sustain them physically, emotionally, financially, spiritually. That you would strengthen Virgil's body and may his treatment be effective. And may he be faithful all the days of his life. Father, we lift up Scott Hughes right now as he is with his father who suffered from a stroke. And as he ministers to his father and his mother and his sisters, I pray that the aroma of the gospel of Christ would bring comfort and conviction to their hearts. That you would strengthen them, that they would be more like Jesus. Father, we all need you. Whether it be a job that we're worried about, whether it be that we need or that we fear losing, may it be the virus as the numbers grow, may it would be our worry about what the future holds in our country, what uh, the social unrest, may we see Jesus and be on guard. For he has told us these times would come. And the Brothers and sisters, for the last two millennium have faced these types of issues and much greater. And your spirit has sustained us. May it sustain us today as well, we pray. In the name above all names, Jesus Christ, we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Mark chapter 13, verses 14 through 23. We continue to go through the book of Mark. Uh, This section is known as the Olivet Discourse, a passing comment by one of the disciples as they're leaving the temple. Jesus explains uh, this great discourse that he has, a great and confusing discourse. I have lamented this week, knowing how difficult not, not only last week was, or two weeks ago, but this week was as well. But as I thought about this, and there was a, a comment that I read in a commentary, and it got me thinking about the last four, five, six years that I've had the privilege of watching Anna and Andrew play volleyball in football uh, during their high school years. Last weekend was Andrew's last game. Uh, Denise and I were in tears, Andrew was in tears, uh, but don't tell anybody, Um, don't let them know I told you, Uh, but uh, I, and I tell people, I loved, I played basketball in high school, I played basketball in college, and I loved it, it was a passion of mine, but I think there was far greater joy in watching my children play and pursue their passions and pursue their joys, and this shared joy that I had watching my children uh, was great dear, and that's why uh, to see it go, is, it will be difficult. But I also loved to see how they would prepare for an opponent. And I, a lot of times I would ask questions. And uh, what would happen is their coaches would watch film. 
of their opponent that was coming, whether it be a football team or a volleyball team, and then they would determine the tendencies of that team, uh, their strengths and weaknesses, and then come up with how they would try to uh, attack or defense themselves. They would say things like, well, they run a 3-4 or their quarterback can't throw deep, they attack on the outside more than they attack in the middle or something like their libero can't pass. And for those of you, many years ago, I had no idea what a libero is or what passing was, but Anna taught me all of that. But what, when they watched film, it gave them an authentic picture of what their opponent was like and what their plan of action would be like. But watching film and stepping onto the court or to the gridiron was immensely different because you can't see on film the the speed of which the ball comes across off the hand of the of the hitter you can't judge the strength of the defensive tackle or the girth of the of, of the defensive tackle nothing can replicate the actual event that is happening ahead of time Though you can prepare yourself by watching, or as this morning as we watch film together about what has happened and what will happen, it prepares us and it reminds us of what is coming, that how we should live, how we should, as Jesus says, be on guard, I have told you ahead of time, as uh, Coach Stomps or Coach Christian told my children, remember the film, what we watch, what they do, and this is how we will counter that. This drama of redemption that has been playing out since Genesis chapter 3 and that will go all the way to Revelation chapter 20 is, and we will get a glimpse of a little bit of the film on what's going to happen and what has happened. Mark has given us the privilege of showing us and preparing us by using historical events. He will prepare us for the great and mighty day of the Lord. And the good news is this. If you and I would watch the film, we see in football a clump of people and one guy running and throwing and sometimes we don't understand what's going on or how they're... I still, after nine years of volleyball, don't understand where all the girls are moving. But it's okay. Jesus knows what's going on. And as we read these confusing things, I um, have probably 500, 600 books in my office. I have countless resources digitally at my fingertips. I've gone to undergrad and, and, uh, and seminary. And I still, as I read through this, this is overwhelming and I weep and wail and gnash my teeth because I have to come up before you and say, thus saith the Lord. And I can walk away saying, I don't know everything here, but Jesus does. And I want you to set your eyes on Jesus when it gets difficult, when it gets hard, as we, our children says, when we want to quit. Keep our eyes on Jesus. He's told us what's coming, but he's also promised he would be with us. So let's begin this morning, because we want to be faithful today, tomorrow, and as long as we have breath. So my big idea for you this morning is this. Faithfulness is not foretelling the future. Faithfulness is not foretelling the future, but being obedient to Christ 
in the present. Faithfulness is not foretelling the future, but being obedient to Christ in the present. And how do we do that? How are we obedient to Christ in the, pleasure, in the, in the present? Well, Mark gives us three ways that we can do that. One is hold loosely to earthly possessions. Two, trust a sovereign God. And three, resist false hopes. Hold loosely to earthly possessions, trust a sovereign God, resist false hope. And if you missed my big idea, faithfulness is not foretelling the future, but being obedient to Christ in the present. Uh, I'll go back and I'll, I'll, uh, we'll revisit that as you know. But before we get to our points, I have to be able to introduce this um, phrase. The abomination of desolation. This very thing that all week has been kept me awake. How am I going to explain this? What's going on? Um, again, Jesus knows and I'm trying to be faithful. Notice verse 14. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Jesus, and then we have to understand the context of what's going on, Jesus is warning his disciples about the grand and glorious temple that will fall. His disciples are walking in the shadows of this beautiful temple, and they say, what a marvelous, glorious temple this is, huh, Jesus? And he says, not a stone will be standing, and very shortly. And that is mind-boggling. And I use the example of the World Trade Tent, uh, Towers. I remember going to New York and looking out the bus and looking up, and you see these massive towers, and nothing could absolutely bring those down. And as we watched on 9-11, the towers fall. Our world was shaken. And the disciples are taken aback by this. And Jesus says, uh, do you see these great build buildings, verse 2? There will not be left a stone. The temple will fall. The picture of God's worship that has now become a den of robbers, a house of snakes, a, um, a, 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 a withered fig tree, it will fall. And Je but Jesus assures that when it falls, it's not because God has failed, but in actuality, God is in control. But to be able to understand what Jesus is saying here, we have to understand a little bit of the soil that this verbiage is uh, planted in. Phil read for us this morning in the book of Daniel where this abomination of desolation comes from. There's three uh, different chapters where he talks about this. I think it's 9, 11, and 20 or 21. Uh, no, there's not that many chapters in Daniel. Um, 7, 9, and 11. You look it up. There's a footnote in the bottom of your page, probably. It says, Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress, and shall take away the regular burnt offering, and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolation. Now, there is a lot of views on what this is. There are futuristic views, and there's historical views, and there's preterist, and uh, dispensational, and pre-mill, and all kinds of things. But I believe the initial fulfillment of this abomination of desolation came to fruition in 167 A.D. 
when the Syrian general Antiochus of Epiphanes went into the temple of God, sacrificed a pig, and installed a, 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 an idol of Zeus in the temple. It so outraged the Jews when their temple was desecrated and brought um, sacrifices to a halt that we uh, come to know the Maccabean revolts, that revolt that happened in the middle of the New and Old Testament and um, brought the miracle of Hanukkah when they were able to reinstate temple worship and cleanse it and uh, reignite the, the candle. And then ultimately... God came to his temple in the person of Christ. But you see this initial fulfillment, but there is more to come than just this historical event. This is a precursor of what of more. And then in Mark chapter 13, Jesus is using this language of Daniel to now explain this destruction of the temple that's going to happen in Mark chapter 13 that we know historically that happened in 68 AD. That this temple, this abomination of desolation is going to happen and it's happening in Mark 13 that Jesus foretells that as his readers are beginning to read some of the readers are Mark. Mark was probably written late 50s, early, mid-60s. The temple fell 68, 70 AD. So his readers are reading what Jesus has said. And all of this is unfolding around them. And they're thinking, God has forsaken his people. And Mark is writing, no, he hasn't. No, he hasn't. Jesus has forewarned us. And we can trust in him, the new temple. But notice, um, Mark is using this language, but Luke doesn't use Daniel's language, but Luke uh, explains it to his readers this way, who have no knowledge of the Old Testament. Luke says this, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that the desolation has come near. So we see this desolation in Antiochus, we see this desolation in the destruction of the temple, but if you're reading through Mark chapter 13, you start to get the feeling that there's more than just a historical event that Jesus is warning us about. This historical destruction of the temple, there's more to it because it doesn't all add up. And believe me, this week I have been reading everything and it doesn't add up. But I see Jesus is telling, he's connecting us, talking about the temple, but there's more to come. There's that Jesus is, is preparing us. I had Jane print my notes out and she stapled them. Such a good secretary. Um, but he's connecting these two and this abomination, that desolation, that his refer, um, comforting his disciples, that this terrible tribulation that they are, are about to endure, and some of his readers are actually enduring it as they're reading the book of Mark. This is not unforeseen. That this is not a failure on God's part. That instead, it's a part of a larger eschatological framework playing out in our midst. Now, kids, at lunch, I want you to drop the word eschatological framework, okay? Drop that, like eating your nuggets, be like, I was thinking through Mark's eschatological framework, Mom. Uh, drop it, and I'll give you a dollar. Um, but what, what, is, what is that? What is this big $5 theological word? There is 
a larger plan of salvation that God is working towards the end times, but it's not just the, uh, the bow on the, on the uh, gift. It's all of the rivers that Jesus is leading towards this one end times event, how Jesus will wrap, moving to the, God's plan of redemption, that something greater is coming that is seen in the temple destruction, but this greater destruction and this greater salvation that Jesus is working. Danny Aiken, um, the president of Southeastern Seminary, puts it this way. He says, the imminent destruction of the temple is the lens through which we should view this distant destruction of the present evil age and the return of the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus Christ. We see in these little glimpses of destruction, these days of the Lord that the prophet said, the exile, the, uh, the d- destruction of the temple, all of these things are foretastes and pictures of what is coming. The destruction of the temple in the first century is the film that we watch that will prepare us how to live and how to think and how to encourage ourselves in Christ We're preparing for the final abomination, the final tribulation, the final salvation that Jesus is working. So with this in our mind, this understanding of what's going on, the the teaching that Jesus gives his disciples who will face this temple destruction, how can we then live today? How then shall we live now and tomorrow and until Christ returns? So the first way is this, hold loosely to earthly possessions in 15 through 18. Jesus says, when you see all this happen, then those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, get out of Dodge, go. This is dire situation, like uh, the plane is on fire, don't go through and try to the Sky Mall and order that uh, thing that you wanted in the Sky Mall, get off the plane, it's on fire. Let the one who is in the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything. Let the one who is in the field not turn back. Alas, for women who are pregnant and who are nursing infants, pray that it may not happen in weekends. Or not weekends. Sorry, winter, not weekends. I mean, you've got to walk, mow your lawn on weekends. You don't want this destruction on the end of the world if your lawn doesn't look nice. I've lived, that's a joke. Thank you. Pam out there somewhere gave me a courtesy laugh. She's always, you're welcome. Um, I've lived in in Florida 20 years. I've been through a good number of hurricanes now. Charlie, um, Gene, Irma, Matthew, and I've really learned to to appreciate the power uh, and really the beauty of a hurricane, but probably what I have most appreciated about hurricanes is the clarity that hurricanes bring us. Because when you're in what I call the cone of shame, where the the hurricane is about to strike, when you're in that territory, it brings clarity to everything. Because in a moment, the lure and the power of materialism vanishes away, right? Because you know, A, I need to get out, and I need to get my loved ones out, and I need to get the necessities out. I need to get my loved ones, my medication, some clothes, 
uh, my, my, the dog and grandma, we need to put them in the minivan and we need to get out. All those other things, your electronics, your, uh, all your fancy things that you've saved for, even your home, though important as that is, you know what's most important and they're in the car with you and you're getting out of Dodge. Hurricanes bring clarity to us. And Jesus is saying this same destruction that's going to happen, that this, as God's plan of redemption comes to fruition, the abomination of desolation is unfolding in J Jerusalem, that the nature of the circumstances will tell us we cannot trust in what we can hold on to. We must get out. So much so that if it comes to the realization that it's time to go and you're in your Israeli house on the roof, and instead of walking down the stairs in the back, going inside and getting, you know, your important things, it says go. Don't even go back inside. And if you're working in the field, don't even go back to your house and get a cloak because you don't have time. The imminent destruction is coming. Don't cling to the things of this world. They cannot save you. Obey the one who can, who tells you you need to go. Just as we ignore the flight attendant on, when she's giving us or he's giving us the instructions, but when the plane is on fire, we know we've got to go. We need to do what they said because this is real. We don't have time. Brothers and sisters, nothing, uh, the things of this world, our possessions that we think are so important, do nothing but slow us down. That start slothfulness apathy, material, and worldliness, they will cause us to meet our destruction if we are holding on to those things. Uh, Calvin puts it this way, uh, talking about this. The design of Christ, therefore, was first to arouse his followers that they may no longer indulge the hopes of ease and reproach. Don't get fat and happy on the comforts of your life because just like a hurricane, they're not going to hold up. When the final destruction comes, your ease is not going to help you. The enjoyments of the earthly kingdom, and enjoyments they are, use them with an open hand. And secondly, to fortify their minds that they might not give way to, unordinary, or to um, under ordinary calamities. God, Jesus is attempting to protect his people. Jesus is reassuring his disciples that the terrible tribulation they're about to endure is not unforeseen and it's not a failure on Jesus' part. The urgency of these words should sober us. If we're consumed with the things of this world, we will not be watchful and will not be ready to flee from the coming destruction. The love of the world will cost us eternal life. Imagine many of you know people in your life that once claimed to follow Jesus, and from everything we could see, they loved Jesus. But the love of the world, like Jesus says in his parable, the love of the world choked out their faith. And Jesus is saying, when the coming judgment comes, you cannot cling to the things of this world. You must go, because it is perilous times. And we must be faithful. Because faithfulness is not simply for telling the future, oh, I knew this was coming, but being obedient to Christ in the present. Holding on to Jesus, not the things of this world. So we hold loosely to the things of this world, but we also trust in a sovereign God. 
We trust in a sovereign God. Notice verses 19 and 20. In those days there will be such tribulation as not been seen from the beginning of the creation that God has created until now and never will be. And the Lord had not cut short the days no human being would be saved. But for sake of the elect, whom he chose, he shortened the days. There are many teachers in the church that claim the name of Jesus and speak about God. But they promise a life of following Jesus that is filled with lavishness and health and wealth and prosperity. The problem is they aren't reading all the words of Jesus. We are blessed to know Jesus. And um, in the end, when we sit in the kingdom, there will be great blessing. But the problem is, life now, living in a fallen world, is not all rainbows and unicorns. In fact, Jesus not only promises us blessing now, but he warns us that following him now in a fallen world that is antagonistic towards the gospel will actually probably make things harder. As Jesus, or God said in Genesis 3, sin is crouching at your door and it is desirous to have you. The kingdom of darkness doesn't idly sit back and say, oh look, another one's following Jesus. The tribulation of the first century, excuse me, hold on, I got ahead of myself. Why do we think, um, why do you think Jesus told his disciples these things? Because it's our nature when things get hard that we want to go walk away, to go back. This isn't worth it. To give up, to turn back. This is not what I signed up for. If following Jesus was good all the time, it wouldn't be so hard. Why does God want me to do this? Why does following Jesus feel this way? Why do I have to battle myself to obey Jesus? This is not worth it. It's our nature to not follow Jesus. It's what Paul tells us, that the spiritual man does not desire the things of the Lord. And as we watch in the first century, this tribulation that happens, uh, in the tribulation of the final days, it will be a time of intense pain and suffering and persecution. Josephus, the um, Jewish uh, historian in the first century, talked about what happened when the temple fell. No, this is Jesus saying this, not Josephus. I missed it, so give me a second. I, I apologize. I was like, that sounds a lot like Jesus. Um, Josephus said it this way. Um, the roofs were... Th- you know what? I skipped the part. Let me go. I'll bring it up. Josephus says, The roofs were thronged with famished women, with babes in arms, and the alleys with corpses of the elderly. Children and young people, swollen from starvation, roamed like phantoms through the marketplace and collapsed wherever their doom overtook them. There was no lamenting or wailing because famine had strangled their emotion. Jerusalem could not bury all the bodies, so they were flung over the wall. The silence was broken only by the laughter of robbers stripping the body. So much for your best life now. Following Jesus is difficult. Jesus tells us in Mark 16 that I had up there, I have said these things to you that to keep you from falling away. 
they will put you out of the synagogues. And the hour is coming, whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. And that they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you. I have shown you this film. That when your hour comes, you may remember that I told this to you. Following Jesus, I promise you, will eventually lead you through deep valleys and dark waters. But the promise of our Savior is I will never leave you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will be with you. I will guide you and lead you. Nothing can overtake you. I am in control. And we see this in, the, in verse 20 as we, he calls us to trust this sovereign God. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, God, our sovereign God, is in control and he's moving this eschatological picture towards the end to accomplish his salvation. If the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. Even in Jerusalem's darkest hour, and the final day of humanity when the darkest hour comes, God is in control. When the atrocities against God's people were unthinkable, God had not abdicated the throne. In fact, in his grace, he shortened the days for the sake of the elect. You may ask the question, who are the elect? The elect are God's chosen people, not uh, Israel, to be used in this context, Israel who God chose to bring salvation to all the nations, um, but the elect who God, as in, you see throughout the epistles, chose before the foundation of the world to bring to himself. People from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. A people for himself, the elect. The art 39 articles uh, wrote, right, um, put it this way. Put it this way, there you go. He has constantly decreed by his counsel secret to us to deliver from curse and damnation those who he has chosen in Christ out of mankind and decreed to bring by Christ to everlasting salvation as vessels made to, uh, to honor. Who are the elect? The elect are those whom God has chosen to call his own, not on the basis of their own worthiness, of their own merit, of their own goodness, of their own righteousness, but an account of God's amazing grace. Throughout Scripture, there's other names for the elect. Um, the faithful, the chosen, true believers, Christ's sheep, the beloved. Who are the elect and how do we know? Uh, look at earlier in verse 13b. Those who endure to the end will be saved. The elect are those who are united to Christ by faith. All who have repented of their sin and trusted in Christ's saving work. All of the elect are held safely in the hands of Jesus. The elect are loved by God and protected by God, known by God, held by God, served by God, blessed by God, valued by God, and seen by God, and their cries are heard by God. The salvation of the elect is not based on their faithfulness or anything in them, but everything that is in the heart of our gracious and compassionate God. 
Their salvation is His work from beginning to end. Therefore, they are secure. Not because they're holding on to, on to Jesus, because Jesus is holding on to them. Therefore, we can be confident that when they, we face trials and tribulations, we have the confidence that nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God. As Romans chapter 8 says, who can bring charges against God elect? God is the one who brought them salvation and God will keep them in the midst of salvation. One of the songs that we sing often here is He Will Hold Me Fast. Chris, if you bring it up for me, this is a little wonky. Um, When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my path through, or keep my hold through life's fearful path, for my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so, he will hold me fast. Ocean Park, we don't need to cling to the things of this world for our salvation because the hand of our Heavenly Father is holding on to us. In the dark night of soul, in the anguish of soul, in our loneliness, in our persecution, when, uh, in betrayal and suffering, if you are in Christ, if you have put your faith in the sovereign God, He holds you. You can trust the heart of our Father that there's nothing death nor life or angels or rulers or things present or things to come, nor powers or heights nor death. Nothing in all of creation can separate us from the love of God. He holds us in his hand and no man can pluck us from our Father's hand. The question is, how do I become one of the elects? How can I face tribulation in my life without confidence that God will hold me? Mark says in 1.15, two words. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. Repent of your own allegiance to yourself. To your own kingdom. Trusting in yourself. Stop living for yourself. Stop serving yourself. Surrender to the rightful king of the universe. Repent of living um, according to your desires and for your glory. Repent and believe. Believe what Jesus or God said is true, that Jesus took your punishment, your wrath on the cross, and that his resurrection gives you a righteousness where you can stand united to faith in Christ. And now, because of that, because of what Christ has done, you will follow Him in baptism, in obedience, in repentance every day, following Jesus and being faithful to obey. I pray, brothers and sisters, friends, neighbors, visitors, if you don't know Jesus, you can know the confidence and the assurance of the promises of God by repenting of your sin and believing in the work of God in Christ. Because faithfulness is not foretelling the future, but being obedient to Christ in the present. We hold loosely to earthly possessions. We trust the sovereign God, and we resist false hopes. If anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe him. 
For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But it's not possible, because they're held in our Father's hand. Be on guard, I have told you all things um, beforehand. Signs and miracles, Jesus said, are one of the greatest obstacles to true, genuine belief. And you might think it's the opposite way. Give me a sign, give me a miracle. Jesus warns us of the dangers in these verses. Why do signs, why are signs and miracles so dangerous? Because they lead us away from Jesus. Charlatans and false prophets and hucksters peddling the word of God for profit want you to embrace mirages and fantasies and errors for their benefit and lead you away from Jesus. We don't need signs and wonders, Ocean Park. We need Jesus. We need Jesus because his words comfort us. His spirit leads us. His presence sustains us. The great song, what a friend we have in Jesus. Go ahead, uh, Chris, bring that up. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful? Who will all our sorrow share? Jesus knows our every weakness, our every struggle, our every trial, our every doubt, our every lonely night and every tear. Take it to the Lord in prayer. False prophets will come and will seek to lead you away from Jesus, to embrace the, embrace the comforts of the world, its possessions, the empty promises, self-reliance, and self-doubt, and it will be to our destruction. Josephus recounts in the first century a group of, 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 of people who believed the deceitful lies of a false prophet who told the people to stay in Jerusalem and it sealed their faith. fate. It said, while the sanctuary in Jerusalem was in flames, everything that fell in their way became a prey to rapine, and prodigious was the slaughter of those found there. To no age was pity shown, no rank respect, but children and old men, secular persons, and priests were overwhelmed in one common ruin. All ranks were enclosed in the embrace of war and hunted down. They owed their destruction to what? to a false prophet, who had on that day proclaimed to the people in the city of God, commanded them to go to the temple court to receive their tokens of deliverance, and they died. Don't listen to the empty promises of false prophets who will lead you away from Jesus and his word and his promises. Set your mind on Jesus to know him. We must not be infatuated with signs and wonders that will take our eyes off of Jesus, our only hope in life and death. There are many false prophets in the church today who will lead people into two traps. One trap is the overzeal for the end times. I talked about this last week. I don't like preaching end times because nobody listens. Because they're trying to figure out how is this election tied to the Antichrist? How is this? How is that? Um, uh, I heard a squeak in my house last night. Maybe that was the false prophet 
Uh, we get so infatuated. And what happens, these teachers, uh, their deception draws the focus away from Jesus. And instead of focusing on Jesus, we focus on blood moons and days and weeks and antichrists and beasts, trying to put these puzzle pieces together. And when we don't have all the puzzle pieces, our focus becomes everywhere but on Jesus. And the opposite side of overzealousness is nonchalantness. It's been 2,000 years. What does it matter at this point? Their teaching leads us to skepticism and disinterest, and we lose watchfulness. It's very easy to lose the forest within the trees. We shove these texts to the meat grinder of our theological systems, and we disfigure the text, and we lose Jesus. Jesus gives us the Olivet Discord not to wow us by his predictions of the future, but to call his disciples to faithfulness today. Whether that was the first century or the 21st century, the question is, are you listening to Jesus? Ocean Park, our job is not to get to lost in the, G- in the details. Our job is to focus on Jesus today to go and tell of the good news of great joy that's for all people. That when the world is crashing down around us, there is a kingdom who is not shaken and whose king is named Jesus. As we read such texts, may our eyes always be on Jesus, his life and his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his reign at the Father's right hand, and his return so that we don't lose our way. He is our only hope in uh, in life and death. Jesus is the one who stands the test of time. Hope triumphs over the grave, and there is no other hopes in in trials and tribulations, destructions and desolations that we can turn to. We must keep our eyes on Jesus. We must hold loosely to the, uh, the earthly possessions. We must trust the sovereign God. We must resist faithful hopes. Our false hopes, because faithfulness is not foretelling the future, but being obedient to Christ today in the present and trusting Jesus tomorrow and as long as we draw breath. Shall we pray? Gracious Heavenly Father, may we see Jesus as the nations rage, kingdoms rise and fall. There is still one truth over all. Jesus our only hope in life and death. May we see Jesus, and may it cause us to be faithful today and tomorrow, and as long as we draw breath. In Christ's precious and holy name we pray. Amen.